it's one of those things where you hear all the time that, you know, your life can change in the blink of an eye and, and you hear about it, you know, and you know that it, that it's reality, but you just, you just think that you're the exception. You think it's just never going to happen to you. You know, I'm sitting there in the hosp- hospital and I'm looking at my sister and, and I'm hoping that she's going to, you know, pull through and, and make it, but I really don't know. And I've been away from Alcoholics Anonymous uh, from the program for like three and a half years, right? Haven't reached out to my sponsor, haven't talked to anybody in the program, no meetings, nothing. And a thought comes to my head when I'm looking at my sister in a hospital bed and the thought is call your sponsor, work the steps. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you are all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Well, hello, ladies and gents, boys and girls. That was the voice of Mr. Jared M. here on episode number 163 that you heard at the beginning of this episode. And you are going to hear so much more from him in just a moment. But first things first. This episode, right here, right now, that you are listening to at this very momento, is brought to you by Vivian, and Terry, and Todd, and Kurt. Do you know what Vivian, and Todd, and Terry, and Kurt did? Well, they went to our website, Soberspeak.com. They clicked on the little yellow PayPal tab. Actually, you know what? It's not yellow anymore. We have a, a new website and it may be yellow by the time you see it again. But nonetheless, it is a PayPal, PayPal. It is a PayPal tab. They clicked on it and they made a contribution. So thank you, Vivian and Terry and Todd and Kurt. This episode is coming right out to you and I, John M., will be the chairperson for this meeting between meetings, and I am truly honored and privileged to serve all of you listening in. So take a seat, if you will, around this virtual table, and let's get started. This is Sober Speak, a meeting between meetings at your fingertips. I play around with that one every once in a while. Some Somebody wrote in with that uh, actually some time ago. I'm sorry, I should remember who it is, but I don't right now. I'm but anyway, uh, just play around with little taglines. I got to make it kind of exciting for myself. Uh, as I mentioned there a little bit ago, we did redesign the website and uh, we have a we even have a new logo. And as I said on my Thanksgiving message, please do not panic when you see a new logo. And please do not panic when you see a new website. It is okay. 
okay. Change is good. We must uh, um, metamorphosize. No, is that the word? We evolutionize. We must move forward in our being and still continue to create and change and all that kind of stuff. I have no idea what I'm saying. But nonetheless, we have a new website. If you want to go check it out, www.silverspeak.com. And you'll see that new logo. Also, my beautiful bride, Miss Shannon, actually uh, created that. And I'm very thankful that she has that sort of skill set because I do not. All right. So if you are listening to this, so I don't know exactly when I'm going to release this. I may release it on Thursday as opposed to Friday, just so some extra people can hear this, just to be a little different. But our final live event via Zoom for the year will be featuring Gary Kay on December 4th, Friday. So if you're listening to this December 3rd or December 4th, you have a chance to still join the Zoom meeting. But if you're listening to it after that point, after 7 p.m. Central Time in the United States de la America, you will not be able to join in uh, because we'll be done. But we're going to have that Sober Speak Live event, uh, and we're going to have it as we've done in the past. In other words, I'll be interviewing Gary on the first part of the episode, and excuse me, of the live event, which will turn into an episode later. But I'll be interviewing Gary on the first part of the live event. And on the second part, guess what? You, yes, Ewan's get to tune in or Ewan's get to chime in and ask your questions of the one and only Mr. Gary Kay. It is going to be absolutely fantastic. We hope to see you there. And that's another reason to go to the website. If you need all the Zoom information, like the, the login and the password and all that stuff that goes along with Zoom, um, you'll need to go there. Or you can see it on our Facebook uh, if you're in the secret Facebook group. In fact, I think it's even on the public page. You could probably see it there. And we also have it posted uh, in the Instagram room. No, not a room. The, you know, feed. Is that what you call it? Anyway, it's all on Instagram. And we actually have it on Twitter. I'm getting a little better with Twitter. Twitter's not my thing. I don't know how to use it that well. I, I really don't know how to use any of them. Fantastic. Uh, but anyway, I'm getting a little bit better with that. So you can go all, to all those places. Once again, December 4th, Gary K live. And I'm also working on getting some music cranked up for that event as well. What else do we have here? I, you know what? I'm just going to go. Oh, I do want to say if you were not in the super secret Facebook group and you would like to be part of that community, just email me with your email address associated with your Facebook account to John J O H N S O speak.com. If you are not following us on Le Instagram, you can find us. We're at Sober Speak, all one word. We'd love to have you along for the ride. And if you're on Twitter and you want to follow us, it's, um, ooh, got to think about this. It is at Sober underscore Speak, right? So, so there's a slight difference there when you go on Twitter, right? Sober underscore Speak, but Instagram is Sober Speak, all one word, at you know, all the ats and hashtags and pounds and all that kind of stuff. Nonetheless, I am glad to be here with you, my tribe, my people. Today, we have the one and only, 
Mr. Jared M. This episode is called How Life Can Change in the Blink of an Eye. Jared is originally from Glendale, California, and he lives in Texas today. We covered things like rave parties, meth addiction, tattoo artistry, and Jared's work as a DJ. We discuss how Jared lost his best friend, Frankie, at the age of 24, uh, and how sad that was. Um, toward the ep- uh, end of the episode, Jared discusses his relationship with his sister, Amber. I'll let you hear that story. I don't want to spoil it. I want Jared to tell it in his own words, but the title that we have named this, How Life Can Change in the Blank of an Eye, is basically about Jared and his relationship with his sister. And you'll want to hear all that. One of my favorite quotes from the episode is when Jared says, not everything happens for a reason, but everything that happens in life can serve a purpose. Very well said. Mr. Jared, I'll let you take it away from here. And everybody listening in, we will have plenty of listener feedback on the end of this episode. Enjoy, Jared. Okay, everybody. So today we are sitting here with Mr. Jared M. So Mr. Jared M., first things first, why don't you go ahead, introduce yourself, if you would, please, and give your sobriety date if you choose to do such. Thanks, John. My name is Jared M., and I am a real alcoholic. My sobriety date is December 18th, 2011. December 18th, 2011. And Mr. Jared, first thing I want to talk about is your name. A lot of people, you, you have a different spelling of your name, right? So go ahead and tell everybody. You'll see it when it comes out. But what's the spelling <laughs> of your name? It's kind of unusual. I mean, it it's normal to me. <laughs> I mean, I think... I can only remember once or twice in my life that someone has actually spelled it correctly without me spelling it for them. So. Even when you were coming over yes. here and I said, okay, now how do you spell your name again? And I got it wrong. Yeah. No, it's all good. I'm used to it. So It is J-E-R-R-E-D. Have you ever met any other J-E-R-R-E-Ds? Uh, not personally, no. But you know that they're out there. There's probably one or two of them that exist, yeah. <laughs> so I'm not the only one. Do you know, like, where that name, do you know, like, how you got My that? mom picked yeah. it, so... <laughs> but do you, did she say how she picked the spelling? You know, I never asked her. Okay. That's a good question, though. Okay. Maybe well, I should ask her. There you go. All right, so... Um, Jared and I, I I guess we've known each other. We attend the Frisco group together. And I think you go to other groups as well, uh, as do I. Um, But we've known each other, I think, for probably four or five years now, something of that nature. And um, let's go ahead and talk about how this was actually set up. I mean, I'm fine with this. So David was uh, actually set to come over here. A lot of people have heard David before. uh, And we were going to record an episode with him. And uh, at the last second, he couldn't make it. And uh, he suggested you, and I had heard you tell your story before, and I was like very excited about it. I said, let's get Jared over here on the mic. So, Jared, you're from California, do I remember that right? Yeah, I'm from Glendale, California. It's uh, right outside Los Angeles. It's by Pasadena Burbank. So, did you grow up there, or did you grow up somewhere like, uh, I mean, was that the primary place you Yeah, I was, I was, so I was born uh, in Glendale, and I, and I grew up in Glendale and spent half my life in Glendale and my other half in uh, Canoga Park, which is San Fernando Valley. So, you know, a mixture of the two. 
And um, I moved out here uh, to Texas in December, or not December, May of 2017. What so. brought you out here? Uh, God. Yeah. You know, um, I guess the series of events that happened that kind of pushed me in a direction that maybe I needed to be in. So I was open to it. And, you know, it's interesting because I never even... It never even been to Texas ever, and um, what was your what was your like image of it before you got here? Uh, honestly, just like a bunch of dirt and horses and cactus and <laughs> right. stuff like that. And you know, obviously, when I got here, it was nothing like that. But it's just like everything else, right? Right. And so you got here, and um, all right, Liz, let's go back a little bit there, and then move forward. Um, I, my my guess is so we'll talk about that. Uh, confluence of events, whatever okay. you want to call it, that got you here eventually when we get up to, what, 2017? Um, but let's go back a little bit and talk about you uh, growing up. Tell me about your family life. I mean, what was it like there? Well, from an, uh, from an early childhood, uh, you know, I was so I was raised by my grandparents till I was right around five years old. So where were your, grandpa- your parents over the first five? Well, okay, so my dad was kind of... Not there ever. Um, still to this day, don't have a name, don't have a picture, don't have anything. Um, obviously, that was something that I noticed was missing or out of place uh, from an early age. And, you know, my mom was just out kind of doing her thing, you know. And um, so she kind of scooped me back up right, aw- right around the age of five. And uh, I went to live with her and her boyfriend at the time, um, who she ended up marrying and is now my stepfather. And I call him my dad, you know, he's the, he's the only dad that's ever been there. And he's the one who's been there. Yeah. And I, and I love him, you know, and I'm grateful for him, you know, but it was difficult, you know, in the beginning, just trying to, you know, I always felt like, you know, comparing myself to other people and wanting what other people had, you know, my friends had their parents were together and their brothers and sisters were all, you know, same mom and dad. And, and I think that's where I kind of just got disconnected and just this constant need to, be like other people, right? Thinking that that was going to somehow fulfill me or bring me happiness. You know, I was really good at looking at the things that I wasn't happy with and not being grateful for the things that I had, you know, Um, because clearly there was people that had a lot less than I had. I want to go back to your dad for a second. So you said you don't have a name. Don't have a name. Don't have a picture. Wow. So has that... I mean, how has that manifested in your life over the years? Do you do a lot of wondering about that? Um, yeah, oh, when I was younger, yeah, it bothered me all the time. You know, I mean, I would talk to my mom. Obviously, you know, I'd ask questions, the obvious questions, and I never got any answers that I was looking for. And actually, after I moved to Texas, I uh, I took the twenty three and Me DNA test, and uh, I actually got really close to finding him. Believe it or not, like I was really, really close. I found a first cousin on my dad's side. Um, and so my cousin's dad was actually my uncle would have been his, uh, his father would have been my biological father's brother. Um, and I reached out to him, you know, and I had expectations about what it was going to look like, you know, and, and all this stuff. And, you know, unfortunately it didn't work out. I did, I did get a picture of my grandmother who was still alive at the time, um, living in Colima, Mexico, and she was over a hundred years old, which is pretty cool. But I had a lot, I mean, here's the thing, right? Like I had these expectations of, of, of how it was going to turn out and what was going to happen. And it didn't happen that way, but I have a lot more information than I ever had, you know? So that's kind of cool. So do you believe possibly he is still alive? Oh yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm pretty sure he is. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. 
But I mean, it doesn't change who I am. No. Right. And, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't ever really looking for anything. Like I wasn't trying to like, you know, have this relationship that I've never had or something crazy. You know, I just wanted kind of like a name and a picture just for, I don't know, maybe some closure. But I mean, it is what it is, right? I mean, you know, I'm grateful for, you know, my life and everything that has happened. And I mean, I don't really think that having that would really change anything. Understood. So. Okay, so you're with your mom and your stepfather. That happens about five or six. And so kind of take me forward from from there. And so, you know, so my mom ended up getting pregnant uh, with my sister, Eden, and uh, they ended up getting married. A couple years later, uh, my mom gave birth to twins, Emily and Amber. I was... Yeah, it was me and my three sisters. So, <laughs> you know, your three, did you say three sisters, yes, right? Yes. So you have Eden and then you have Emily and Amber. Emily right? and Amber, yes. And so, so you're the only, you're, you're, I'm the, the only boy. You're the only dude. Yeah. House full of women. <laughs> How was that? Oh, it was interesting to say the least. You know, I love them, you know, and I, I never, you know, I never really made the separation or recognized them as like, stepsisters or half-sisters, you know, I changed their diapers when they were young and, and, you know, we've been through everything together. So, you know, I love them with all my heart. So needless to say, you know, when I was the only child, you know, all the attention and focus was on me and, you know, as an alcoholic who loves attention, right. Um, that was great. And then when my sister Eden was born, there was less attention for me. And, and when Emily and Amber were born, even less attention for me. So I struggled that I, I struggled with that. Um, I struggled with, again, the comparing, you know, even to my sisters, you know, just the, the jealousy and, and the wanting, you know, they have their mother, they have their father, you know, I have at least half, which is better than none. But, you know, it's the, it's the, you know, always being here, but wanting to be there, you know, something that I always struggled at, always struggled with. And, you know, growing up, you know, again, comparing myself to others. And, you know, I would say, and junior high is is when kids start partying and and you know it really becomes this approval of others and fitting in and and being the cool kid in school. So I first got introduced, you know, to alcohol and marijuana when I was probably in like seventh grade. <laughs> you know, it's funny because so I was I was born with this heart condition, right, where I I had to go to the doctor and get like EKGs and stuff when I was younger. I guess it was like a leaky valve or like they called it a hole in my heart. I think it's like a murmur. But I remember like the first time I ever smoked weed, like I was scared to death thinking like, oh my God, I'm going to smoke this and, and I'm going to die. And my <laughs> whole family's going to be like, he, he died like smoking a joint. Like it was just silly, you know. But it, it's funny because the interesting thing is that, you know, I smoked and I didn't feel anything. And it took me, you know, and, and but I retried it. You know, I tried it again and I probably didn't really feel anything, you know, till I smoked maybe five times. You know, a normal person would have tried it once and be like, this doesn't work, so what's the use, right? But, you know, I was I was seeking something to fill the void, you know, um, whether it be from others or or just something. I didn't know. I mean, that's the thing. At the time, I didn't know what it was. So, moving forward, right? So, I would say around 14 or 15 years old, um, I got introduced to methamphetamine for the first time. It did marvelous. That's pretty, that's pretty young for math. Right? Yeah, well, for some people, it might be might be late, might be old, but yeah, right. Um, but yeah, you know, I really liked that. It made me, it gave me a lot of energy. It made my mind, you know, go even faster than it normally went, and you know, I felt invincible, and you know, I enjoyed it. 
You know, I, I would say, you know, my aha moment like Bill was when I was 16 years old and um, I was in, I think I was a freshman in high school and I went to a rave party for the first time. I don't know if raves were popular out here uh, yeah. in Texas, but California, they were mm-hmm. very popular. And so I went, you know, I went to like one or two rave parties. I think one of them was a club, but I tried ecstasy for the first time. And I think the first time I tried it, like nothing happened, right? And I was like, this music, you know, sucks and I don't feel anything, right? And I think, you know, I got basically some bunk, you know, someone sold me some, something that wasn't real. Uh-huh. But again, you know, almost like going back to, you know, the first couple of times I smoked and it didn't do anything, you know, I kept on trying because I was still seeking, you know, some type of, you know, relief or some type of experience that I, you know, was hoping would be there. And like the second or third time is when I had that just, unbelievably you know just incredible moment where you know i never i didn't believe that it was possible to feel that good and and so that was my moment when when i was like this is it this is i found what i was looking for and i want to revisit this as much as possible i love everybody and everybody loves me oh yeah and you just don't care right you just don't care like you know the rave scene back in the late 90s and early 2000s you know they have this uh they used to say plur right p-l-u-r which is peace love unity and respect and you have a lot of like outcasts and people that are whatever but you go in like everybody you know loves everybody right and they don't judge you and all this stuff and you know the music sucks when you're not high but once you get a couple pills in you that music sounds real good (laughs) you know so so i was trying to go to, to to rave parties like every weekend needless to say that became more important than school you know i ended up dropping out of high school and not graduating this continued in my early 20s, probably 22, 23, somewhere in that area, you know, and I was still going to rave parties, you know, trying to take X on the weekends. And it was just crazy. Were you working at the same time? No. Oh, no. Obviously not. No. Well, I mean, at the time, you know, I was living with my grandfather. My grandfather is, I mean, he's taught me everything that there is, you know, about being a man, you know, and I respect him, you know, for everything, you know, that he's ever done and, and just trying to live up to you know, that level that he was in my addiction, you know, I, I took advantage of him a lot, you know, all the time I drug him through the mud. And uh, it was one of those things where, you know, I would just lie to get what I wanted. You know, I'd tell him I'm going out here. I need a couple bucks. Can you spot me? Sure. No problem. And then I would go and, and then come back. And, you know, sometimes I would actually not be going to a rave, but telling him I was going to a rave, but really just going to, you know, score some dope. And then I'd come right back and be like, well, I thought you were going here. And I'm like, yeah, well, I checked it out. And, you know, it was whack. So I just came back, you know, and it just, you know, it sucks because, you know, it, you know, it would kill me lying to him, right. you know, lying to, because I mean, he loved me unconditionally. And, you know, one of the beautiful things that this program has given me is, is the living amends, you know, when I finally did get sober is he was able to see me sober before he died. So. Okay. So you're raving. <laughs> Weren't you a DJ? Are you a DJ? As I am well? a DJ. Yeah. Okay. I've been DJing for over 20 years now. So. And so, what's that like? I mean, um, I mean, I, I, I love music, man. You know, I love music, and um, you know, music has been my life. I mean, my my dad got me my first set of turntables when I was eighteen. Do you um, do that? Waka waka waka. Uh, sometimes a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> That's that. the scratching. Yeah, the scratching. Um, Thank you. There was times when I tried, but it's not really my thing. I'm more of like a mixer. You know, I just like kind of like moving the crowd, like up and down, like taking you on a ride, you know, highs and lows, you know, telling a story kind of. Very nice. Yeah. Is there any particular music that you generally end up playing? House music. Okay. Yeah, house music. But I mean, it it has all types of, you know, genres kind of mixed in it. You know what I mean? So it's not just... 
you know, f- to the untrained ear, it just all sounds like, ns, 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 you know, and it's all the same, but um, it, it's definitely not. I mean, I, I like anything that, you know, has a good rhythm, has a good groove, vocals are good. You know, I like pretty much everything. You know, it's one of those things where, I mean, if, if you play polka and it sounds good, I have yeah. an ear for it, right? Yeah. So it doesn't really matter the genre. But yeah, I mean, I love it. I'm passionate about it. You know, That's great. So. And that's the thing you can't train people on. You can't teach people to have that, quote, ear, yeah. right? Either you have it or you don't have it. And yeah. honestly, you're one of the guys that have it. Let me just take a little break here real quick, all right? You... We will be continuing our conversation with Jared in just a moment. Just a reminder, you are listening to Sober Speak. You can find us on the World Wide Web at SoberSpeak.com. There you'll find approximately eh, 160 or so other episodes you can listen to for free. You can also find the donate button on our website, which you can use. And if and only if the spirit moves you to do such. Please keep in mind, this is a podcast funded by you, the listener. Soberspeak is a self-supporting organization through our own contributions. We are not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. We do not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any causes. All right, now back to Mr. Jared. All right, so you're going through the the raving scene. Uh, you're in your mid. You're in your lower twenties there. Uh, do you know you're out of hand already with uh, drinks and alcohol or drugs and alcohol? I mean, I suspected it. I think like a lot of people, like I thought I was in control. I thought I was the one that was calling the shots and making decisions. And I thought that that out of controlness that I kind of wore as like a badge of honor, right? Like I, I was that guy out of the group of friends. Um, but I thought I was cool because of it, you know, but kind of in the back of my mind or in my heart, I kind of knew maybe that something wasn't right about it. So the first real kind of thing that like catapulted, you know, my addiction was uh, when I lost my best friend Frankie when I was 24. That was that was real tough. You know, I, I told you I, I grew up, you know, in a house full of full of girls. So I, I always, you know, wanted a brother. And Frankie was probably the closest thing that I ever had to a brother. You know, he, he was a kid that I met, lived down the street, uh, met him when I was probably like 10 or 11, somewhere in that area. We went to school together. You know, we grew up, we partied together and all that stuff. And, you know, I, around that, you know, in my, in my teenage years, I was, I was in the Canoga Park in the San Fernando Valley. And, you know, let's just say that Canoga Park isn't necessarily the nice side of town. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of, you know, drugs and violence and gangs and stuff like that. And so, you know, it was Were a, you in a gang? I was not, but um, I, it was definitely attractive to me. Again, trying to seek that approval from others and want, you know, that need to try to fit in. And so, like, you know, kind of me and Frankie, we were kind of like at this turning point, you know, this fork in the road where, like, you know, we had to make a decision to go left or right. And, you know, I dabbled a little bit in, in the going, you know, right rather than left. Um, but ultimately, I went left instead of right. And, and Frankie went hard right. And so, describe to me what hard right looks like. Like, not drinking or what? No, I mean, you mean on his end or my his, his, his end? No, I mean, like, just full-blown, just living that lifestyle okay. of, you know, women, the drugs, the crime, the violence, you know, all that stuff. I don't know anybody that's ever lived that lifestyle successfully and hasn't ended up going to prison for life or, or been killed. You know, that's ultimately what happens. You know, I was very fearful of him being murdered. I mean, that was that was a very, you know, real, you know, scenario um, for just the lifestyle that he was in. You know, it's interesting because so at the time, right, I was actually, you know, things were kind of building up, you know, to that to that moment um, where I was just completely out of control. And I remember at the time, um, you know, he was 
you know, he was selling meth and I remember I'd gotten an ounce fronted from him. I had, I had smoked half the ounce and I didn't have any money, right? And I got scared. I mean, Frankie was not a person that you want to owe money, <laughs> money to, right? I mean... Even if you're his best friend. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he was just, I mean, just a scary dude. You know, you just look at him and you, you know, the fear is already in you. And so anyways, I reached out to him and I said, hey man, you know, like uh, I need to give this back to you. You know, I don't have any money, all this stuff. And... You know, and I met up with him, and so this was like, you know, a, a really big, you know, this was an important uh, moment in my journey, right, is when I met up with him at a, I met him in a in a gas station, right, in the in the valley, and uh, I remember, you know, he, he was in the front seat, he turned around and looked at me, and I was just, I was just a, a mess, you know, and he looked at me and he told me, you know, you know, he's like, what the fuck's wrong with you? And I looked at him and I just, I just started crying, man, you know, and I said, I said, I got a problem. You know, I said, I don't know what's wrong with me. I said, I can't stop. You know, I have a problem. And that was the first time in my life that I had ever admitted to anybody that I had a problem, right? And I think that that's a key point in anyone's journey is that initial getting to the point where you realize that you're not in control or that you're out of control or that you have a problem or that you need help, right? Because nothing can be done after that point. Getting to that point is crucial because some people will never admit that they have a problem or they can't handle it on their own. I saw that was actually the last time that I saw Frankie, you know, and I got a phone call shortly after from uh, from one of our mutual friends that, you know, that he had he had crashed his bike and he had, he had died. That was just like, I mean, it was just it was just heartbreaking, you know, I didn't want to believe it. And so, you know, after that after that uh, after that happened, you know, I just kind of drank myself, you know, into a blackout like every day for 30 days, you know. I mean, I would wake up and it would I would be like, is this a dream? Is this really happening? And then when I realized like, yeah, you know, it, it's real life. And then I would just drink myself until I blacked out again. And I did that for about 30 days. And then I kind of just realized like, you know, he's gone. And so I just kind of went back to doing my own thing. You know, I got into a lot of really toxic relationships, you know, seeking, you know, women that just kind of, you know, got high, like how I got high or drank how I drank. About a year and a half after that, right? So, so from the time that Frankie died until the time that I f went to treatment for the first time. So I went to treatment in uh, 2007 for the first time. And the reason why I went to treatment was, okay, we'll back up a little bit. I have a friend who, you know, when I was, when I was really, you know, deep in my addiction, um, he he showed up one day on my back on my back uh, porch, and I hadn't seen him in a while. And this is a guy that I used to you know drink and use you know pretty heavily with. And you know he looked different, right? And and he looked like happy, and he had this glow. And he's like, hey man, you know I just want to stop by to see how you're doing. And he's like, you know I just want to let you know you know that I love you and that I care about you. You know, and if you ever need help, I, I can help you out. And obviously, you know, I'm I'm in there just trying to get high in my back room. And I'm like, okay, dude, like, you love me. You care about me. Like, yeah, okay. You know what I mean? Like, because, you know, like, I mean, again, you know, growing up around, like, you know, the drugs and the, and the violence and, and all that kind of, like, lifestyle, right? Like, men, they never show their emotions, right? Like, you never tell another man that you love them. You know, you don't or hug you another man. Yeah, them. absolutely. Or you can you know, help them. You know, that's something that women do, right? Sorry, ladies. But, I mean, that's what we're taught, you know, so you believe it. And so, it was a little bit weird, but... I mean, again, it was, I had seen, I mean, I remembered him from when he was, you know, like where I was, you know, and he wasn't there anymore. And so I'm like, okay, you know, uh, I'll call you, don't call me type thing, you know, but I need to get back in here and, and finish what I'm doing, you know what I mean? And so he stopped by about a month or two later and he's like, you know, I'm just checking on you. Just want to let you know I care about you. You know, that offer is still on the table and, um, you know, just let me know, you know, never really pushed it on me, never forced me to make a decision, just kind of 
you know, put it out there, you know, and, and obviously, you know, I like that. I kind of got to a point where like, like, like you said, you know, I wasn't working. I didn't have any money. I had no direction, uh, no goals. Right. I was basically leeching off my grandfather. Right. Like rent free, wasn't paying any bills, wasn't doing anything. Right. I had this girl that the relationship was just really ugly and toxic. And, you know, all we ever did was get high together. And so, so I had this like kind of moment of clarity where I'm like, okay, well maybe I'll just kind of take a break. Right. Like I'll go to treatment and really what I'm doing, because here's the thing, right? Like a lot of people, you know, are pushed in the direction of, of, of the program because of the consequences. And that wasn't my, that's not my story. Right. Because I've, I mean, there's been a million times where I should have been arrested and gone to jail and even gone to prison, but I just never got caught. Not to say that if I was in that situation that, this, you know, the consequences would have been enough to kind of push me, but I, I didn't have that, right? I had a lot of enablers and I, I was really good with getting away with shit. I mean, you know, so I got to the point where, you know, I liked the way that alcohol and drugs made me feel and I liked the way that it made me not feel. And a lot of people say that drugs and alcohol can't oh, do anything. Wait a sec. I, I like that. I've never heard that. I like the way that it made me feel. And I like the way that it made me not feel. Absolutely. Very well put. I've never heard it. And so, you know, I got to this point where people say that, you know, drugs and alcohol can't do anything to you unless it's done something for you. And for a long, long time, it did a lot for me, right? It quieted, you know, the mayhem in my mind, right? Like just everything that was going on. It, it allowed me to numb the emotions, right? That I didn't want to feel. Um, and it worked brilliantly like for a really long time but i got to the point where like you know, i feel like there wasn't enough drugs in the world or enough alcohol in the world to make me not feel anymore mm -hmm. and that's a scary place to be you know my solution stopped working you know and then i i didn't know what to do right like i didn't know where to go and my buddy showed up at the right time i guess and and all it was was the, the door just had to be cracked open just a little bit just a tiny bit you know for me to just kind of just think about it and be like oh maybe you know, and so I, so the idea that I came up with was like, okay, my tolerance to, to whatever I'm doing right now is very high. You know, you know, my habit is, is costing me a lot. I don't have a job or any money. It's very difficult to support. I mean, you know, running and gunning, when you wake up in the morning with, with, with not a dollar in your pocket and you're trying to, to stay high all day, you know, um, it's, it's a full-time job and it's a lot of work. But I convinced myself that what I needed was a break, right? If I, if I go to treatment, take like a 90-day break, get it out of my system, you know, she's going to miss me. She's going to want me. When we come back, you know, the relationship's going to be better. When I come back, I'm going to be able to drink and use like how I want to. And it's going to be like old times. Fortunately um, for me, or unfortunately, however you want to look at it, well, fortunately, absolutely fortunately. But, you know, when I went up there, you know, I got introduced to the program, Right. And come to find out that, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous and a 12 step program um, was completely different than any idea that I had about it. Right. Like I pictured kind of what you see in the TV shows right. and movies. Right. Like a, a dimly lit room with right. people sitting around very depressing and sad. And, <laughs> you know, I thought if that's what, you know, being sober looked like, then I might as well, you know, give it my chances at going out and just doing my thing, you know. And, you know, so my home group. The Big Book Comes Live out of Pasadena, um, you know, they would carry a seminar to treatment centers um, and it would be a three-day, you know, Big Book breakdown, you know, where they thoroughly went over like, you know, everything from the preface, you know, out, up to like, I think 164. Did they use the Joe and Charlie type of format? So funny. Okay. So, so Bill Morgan, who brought 
Big Book Comes Live to Pasadena, he was actually sponsored by Joe McQuinney, and he went to treatment in Little Rock, Arkansas. Ah. So that's where they actually get their seminars from, and the way that they break it down uh, is definitely has its roots in the Joe and Charlie, absolutely. Gotcha, because I've seen that. When it comes alive, I think I've seen that associated somehow with Joe and Charlie before. Yeah. So I finally, you know, heard the message for the first time, you know, and it was, I was very intrigued. I was very interested, right? There was, you know, so much more than, it was so much more than not drinking. And, you know, to be honest, like I saw something that was very attractive that these people had that I wanted, right? Like a way of living, you know, with, you know, free of drugs and alcohol. And, you know, anybody that's tried to get sober on their own knows that, you know, being sober fucking sucks. Like it does. Like that's the truth, you know, you know, and I'm grateful that it's not about, you know, it's not a stop, stop drinking program. It's a start living program, right? So when was that December 18th, 2011? So, okay. So, so fast forward. So I, so I made beginning right i got a sponsor and uh you know i got i actually i'd written inventory and was ready to start step five when i when i got out of treatment in 2008 and i had an uncle that had passed away he was not married didn't have any children and i get a phone call one day saying hey is this jared you know you're the beneficiary of your uncle kirk's life insurance policy and we have a check for you for seventy five thousand dollars Oh, no, this could be good news or bad news. Well, we all know that money solves all problems. So I'm like, you know, oh, this, I, well, actually, you know, it, it's, it's hilarious because I actually believed at the time that this is God blessing me with this money because of the path that I've chosen now. And, and maybe there's some truth to that, but clearly I was not ready. And, um, you know, it, obviously, you know, it wasn't, it, didn't, it was only a matter of time before I put the program on the back burner. I never got into my fifth step. And just how everyone had prophesied, you know, that the obsession would return, it did. You know, it's funny, you know, they, they talk about it's cunning, baffling, and powerful. And, and like for me, who, who you know, I identify I'm, I'm a drug addict and an alcoholic. You know, I understand that some people are solely alcoholics and some people are solely, you know, addicts. But I'm, I'm both, you know. Um, I have the craving, you know, as it pertains to both chemicals um, or all chemicals, really. But, but yeah, I mean, all it had to do was convince me that, hey, I just just a little joint will be good. You know, you'll be fine. You don't have to, you know, I knew that alcohol would be like the great persuader. I knew that it would be like a magnet towards, you know, what I really wanted. And so I knew that was kind of like, you know, off the table, but you know, once I, you know, I was convinced that I would know how, how I felt and it would be enough. And then once I, you know, had taken action on that lie, um, you know, the shame and the guilt came in, Oh, you know, I'm such a piece of shit. I let myself down. I let my family down. All the, you know, the poor me, poor me, you know, scenario. And, you know, I tried to come back in, um, but there was just too much shame. I'd already made friends in the fellowship and, and, you know, just letting myself down, my family. I mean, it was easier for me to stay out than to come back, you know? So I just, you know, I got a case of the fuckets and I, and, you know, ultimately what it comes down to is I just, I just wasn't ready. I hadn't, I hadn't experienced enough pain yet. And that lasted for three years or so? Is that three right? more years, about three and a half more years. You know, I, you know, I got back uh, when I relapsed, I, I went back to that same girl who was still in active addiction, who I thought that by, you know, walking that, that path that she would follow suit and boy, was I wrong, you know? And so that ended really badly, needless to say. And <clears throat> so I just kind of continued being the same old Jared that I always was, right? Like nothing had ever changed, you know, incredibly selfish, um, just really driven, you know, by fear and, and really the, the only purpose that I seemed to have was to get high every day. How'd you make a living? Did you survive off that $75,000? Oh, that was gone in three months. 
<laughs> oh yeah, that was gone. I mean, I, you know, I also have a gambling addiction, so yeah. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah. A little bit of everything. There, oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Jack of all trades, I guess you could say. <laughs> oh yeah, I went through that money, and it was. I literally did not have a penny left after about three months. So then, how did you make money for the next three years? Um, selling drugs, and you know, I'd I'd get you know, jobs that I'd be able to have for a little while until I didn't have them. And, you know, again, you know, living with my grandfather and, you know, him enabling me. I know he didn't he didn't know it at the time, but, you know, when there was really no push for me to kind of get out of that comfort zone, it's really easy to stay in it, unfortunately. But yeah, and that continued for another three and a half years until, you know, I was, so it was probably about December 13th, I think it was, December 14th of 2011, and I was in, in my bedroom getting high with my girlfriend, a uh, different girlfriend, not that same one. Um, and so my mom, who had recently kind of moved in and, and were living with me and my grandfather, um, she comes in and, you know, she comes in and she says, okay, I'm going to tell you something, but I don't want you to freak out. Mm-hmm. Like, I got really angry at her. And I'm like, dude, don't ever come into my room, like, telling me that. Like, I mean, I knew when you, you know immediately when those words are uttered by anyone, like, your heart just, like, drops to your stomach. And you're like, oh, God, you know? And you go, I'm about to freak out. Yeah. Sure. And, you know, I'm like, just tell me, right? And so, you know, she tells me, she says, well, I, I'm not sure exactly what happened, but but my sister Amber, she said my sister Amber was um, in the hospital, Northridge Medical uh, center in the valley and she was in ICU on life support. I mean, I just, I just couldn't believe it. I mean, it was just, I mean, you can't, you can't explain in words like the feeling of like that news being delivered to you. And she's so, one of the twins. Yeah. She was, uh, she was one of the twins and, you know, Amber and I had a connection that I didn't have with my other sisters. You know, we we had this bond that we we connected through like art and music and tattoos and a lot of stuff. And um, you know, it's kind of hard to describe. You know, and and obviously drugs and alcohol kind of you know made me not as present as I would have liked to have been. And that's an understatement to say the least. But um, so you know, we rushed to Northridge Medical Center. And, you know, of course, I'm picturing the worst in my mind. I'm thinking she's going to be, you know, black and blue and bruised and swollen beyond recognition. And, you know, still... Did, did I miss this? Did they, tell, did they tell you why she was in ICU? So, we, we didn't know until we finally get there. So, we get there and, you know, she just looked like she was sleeping peacefully, right? Um, not a bruise on her, not a scratch on her, but she was, you know, she wasn't, she wasn't awake and she was on a... You know, she had a neck brace and on the breathing machine. And um, so she was actually out with her boyfriend the night before and they were celebrating his birthday at a bar, local bar that he actually worked at. And at the time she was 20 years old. So technically speaking, she probably shouldn't have been in that car or been in that bar. Um, and so, yeah. And so, you know, they were leaving the bar, going home. And, you know, I, I don't know exactly what happened, but I, I think he probably sped up. Uh, through an intersection to beat a red light and lost control and hit a parked car and then a tree and then another parked car. Mm. Yeah, it's just one of those things where you hear all the time that, you know, your life can change in the blink of an eye and, and you hear about it, you know, and you know that it that it's reality, but you just you just think that you're the exception. You think it's just never going to happen to you. And so, so here's the thing, right? And so here's, you know, one of the, you know, a crucial moment, right, um, for me to make a decision, 
you know, I'm sitting there in the hospital and I'm looking at my sister and and I'm hoping that she's going to, you know, pull through and and make it, but I really don't know. And I've been away from Alcoholics Anonymous uh, from the program for like three and a half years, right? Haven't reached out to my sponsor, haven't talked to anybody in the program, no meetings, nothing. And a thought comes to my head when I'm looking at my sister in a hospital bed and the thought is, call your sponsor, work the steps. And I called my sponsor. I called him and I said, hey, look, man, um, you know, my sister's been in a really bad, you know, car accident and I don't know if she's going to make it and I just, I'm ready. I thought I was ready three and a half years ago, but I know I'm ready now and I kind of was preparing for the worst. You know, I knew that that this program is it's not really about not drinking or, or drugging. It's really a pathway to God. And um, I knew that if I that if I lost her, that the only thing that was going to help me get through that was God. You know, I took action on that thought and I called him and I got to a meeting when she was still still in the hospital. Make make trips from Glendale to Northridge, you know, like every day, every night for about four or five days, you know, declined. And uh, they told us, you know, that she was brain dead and there was nothing they could do. It was a rough moment. Uh, it was a really rough moment. So she actually ended up passing on December 18th, 2011. And that's my sobriety day. Oh, wow. Oh, my goodness. So that is the set of circumstances that brought you to December 18th, yes, sir. 2011. Yes, sir. I'm so sorry, Jared. You know, it's it's one of those things where the life I was living before I lost my sister was not, it was not a good life. God wasn't in the equation at all. And I'm, I'm grateful for the pain that I've experienced that allowed me to be willing to make the change. You know, that doesn't mean that I wouldn't give anything to have her back. She came to visit me, you know, with, um, with Emily and Eden and, and my family when I was in treatment. Like, she knew. Like, it's no secret. Like, I wasn't hiding it from anybody. Like, everybody in my family knew that I had a serious problem. They came to visit me in treatment. And, um, you know, obviously, I'm sure they were very disappointed, you know, when I went back out and went back to the old Jared, you know. But, and, you know, when we're in it, like, you know, we're so selfish and we're so, like, you know, we just, it's, it's tunnel vision, right? Like I think, oh, it's my life. I can do what I want. Like I'm not hurting anybody but myself. You know, my sister, you know, and it's crazy too. So my sister Eden actually just, just shared something the other day with me. And it was a post from 10 years ago on Facebook. And I had never seen this post until a couple of days ago. And she posted, she said, I don't think people really understand what it's like um, to have a brother that's addicted you know, to drugs. And she said something along the lines of, you know, I love him so much, but I don't, I don't think that, you know, he even knows that, but she's like, you know, it's just, you know, she's like, I'm just waiting for the call. You know, I hope that I don't get it, but you know, the truth is that I think that, that I will get the call. And that was only months before, you know, Amber was in that car accident and we got the call, but it wasn't for me, but it was from her, you know? And so I, so I dove right in, you know, I, I dove right in head first. I gave it a hundred percent, hundred percent. I didn't, I didn't fight. I didn't resist. I did everything I was told. Um, I made it a priority, you know, above everything, above absolutely everything. I had the spiritual experience. I had the spiritual awakening. And I started sponsoring right away. I got involved in H&I's on the weekly, you know. For those who don't know H&I, hospital and institution. Absolutely. I mean, that's been a a huge part um, of of my recovery and uh, very passionate about that. But, you know, when it comes to like drinking and using, right, like I don't want just a little bit. There's never a point when like, I'm good. 
like I'm trying to get to a point where I can say that I'm good, but I'm never quite there. I like maybe you could say I like to over overindulge. Maybe that's a nice way of saying it. But <laughs> I feel like I have to have to have to bring that same mentality, you know, into my recovery, right? Like I can't just have a little bit, you know, I can't just go to like one meeting a week or, you know, sponsor a guy every once in a while or or pray but not meditate or whatever. Like I've my life today completely revolves around recovery. I mean, I'm involved in a in a men's sober living, which I manage. And my life is just so different today, you know. I mean, for anybody that knew me when I was in my active addiction and, you know, for years just the type of person that I was, um, compared to what my life is like now, I mean, you can't argue that miracles happen within this program. And I talked to you this morning. I believe you had gone to a meeting this morning. You had had some lunch with some guys at the AA group. Which group did you go to? Uh, Clean Air North. Okay. And you know some guys down there you had, oh, yeah, the Saturday morning yes. meeting. I've heard about that. Yes. Steve G goes down there. Yes, yes. Yeah. I, we ate we ate uh, breakfast together. Steve, oh, I'm so Steve sorry. Steve is, is a good friend of mine. Love Steve. <laughs> you know, it's, I mean, there's so, I mean, there, there's so many blessings from, from this program, right? There's so many blessings that, like, you can't even begin to explain to people that, that don't experience it or that haven't experienced it yet just not drinking and using is is the probably the the thing that I'm l- least grateful for if that makes sense because mm-hmm. there's so many other areas of my life um you know like real relationships you know real friends with people that genuinely care cuz the only friends that I that I really ever had are the ones that would hang around because I always had the drugs and when I got sober and I decided I, w- I didn't want to live that life anymore and I was going to do something to change that. Like, how many of them do you think came around to see how I was doing? Right. You know, and then it kind of hits you, like, were they really friends? Mm-hmm. I never thought that I would enjoy helping people. I never thought that I had anything to offer anyone. I like quotes, right? I like inspirational quotes. I like things, you know, I'm a deep thinker. You know, I'm, I'm really about, like, going, like, you know, real, real deep. And so I remember always, you know, there's a lot of people say everything happens for a reason. Right. And, and I kind of believe that for a long time. But then, you know, if you have situations that happen in your life and, and you can't really find acceptance around it, like that quote will piss you off. Right. It will make you so angry. Like, because then I'm thinking like, okay, like, okay, so what's the reason that my sister had to die? Right. Like she was, you know, she was an amazing, amazing spirit. Like she had this glow about her. Right. She wasn't an addict. She wasn't an alcoholic. You know, she was, she excelled in everything she did in her art, in her school, right? She got this award for having straight A's all through elementary, all through junior high, all through high school, never got to be, you know, and, you know, she got a scholarship to Otis uh, Art School and, you know, just amazing person. And, and when things like this happen, you question like, you know, if there is a God, why would he let things like this happen? Or, or you know, if everything happens for a reason, like what's the reason? And so a, a good friend of mine actually said, not everything happens for a reason, but everything can serve a purpose. Mm-hmm. And I like that one a lot better, right? And, and so there is a purpose that can come out of that situation, right? And just to give people hope, you know, that, and clearly there's been people, there's people that, that come through this program that have been through less than I've been, and there's people that get it that have been through way more. I learned that I need to put away my measuring stick and stop comparing myself to others, right? Like the, the end goal is I'm trying to live a good life. Right. I'm trying to live a God directed life, you know, to the best of my ability. Do I fall short? Absolutely. All the time. I don't know. I'm just in a really good spot. And it's all because 
of this program, of the people that loved me when I didn't love myself, that believed in me, you know, when I didn't believe in myself. Yeah, it's amazing. What's it like managing a sober men's living uh, environment? That should be oh, interesting. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. Um, I mean, it has its ups and downs. Um, some might describe it like a sorority house at times <laughs> without the alcohol, right? But, um, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, I learned after getting too attached, you know, emotionally when I first started sponsoring guys, you know, early in recovery and you get so, so emotionally invested, you know, in some of your sponsees, you know, and you really, you know, you just really like, Oh, the, you know, he's going to get it and his life's going to turn around and all this stuff. And when it doesn't happen, you know, it breaks your heart, Yeah. you know? And, and so I kind of try to just take that, same attitude into managing the sober living, right? Like you provide the tools and the environment that should they choose to use them, right? Then their life can change, you know, and they could, they don't have to ever look back. It's completely up to them. One last thing. Did you tell me you were a tattoo artist at one point? Am I right? Yeah, I've done some tattoos over, you know. So, and people can't see you right now, right? This is obviously all audio. I can see your your hands. Do, are you, are, where does it, does it stop on your body? Or do you pretty much have tattoos all over? Uh, I have a little room left, not much. <laughs> a little room. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, again, like I love art. I've been an artist, you know, my entire life. So Amber came to me when she was 16 years old and she told me that she wanted me to teach her how to tattoo. Mm. And, you know, she bugged me and bugged me and bugged me. And at that time, I was just getting into it. I finally agreed, you know, to let her tattoo tattoo me. I was her, her first guinea pig, right? And did you have many tattoos at the time? At the time, I had a few, not as many as I have now. Um, this was probably, oh, I don't know. This was this was years ago. I can't even remember how long ago. That's she, well, she was 16. But, but anyway, so... Um, I mean, she took it and ran with it. I mean, I think, she, so she tattooed me, I think, for the first time. And then when I went to treatment in 2007, when they, when my family came up to visit me for Christmas, um, she had come with like this little portfolio of like 11 or 12 or 13 tattoos that she had already done. And I was like, wow. And so anyways, you know, trying to to be humble, right? Um, or, or being humble, you know, she was f a far better tattoo artist than I ever was, you know, and completely, you know, surpassed me by a long shot. Yeah, she was amazing. She was amazing. Which and, tattoo did she give you when she was 16? Oh, she's got a lot, but this one on my arm, it's, it's kind of like her own, like, oh, abstract, wow. like, kind of deal. But I've got quite a few from her. She did my hand, and, oh, wow. you know, it's just kind of one of those things where... God, she lives on. Yeah, um, I mean, it, physically with you. I, I wanted to get back into it, and you know, I really, I, I still go back and forth with, you know, should I, should I do it? Obviously, the there's a lot of fear based around fear involved around not just committing to it and doing it because I love doing it. It's my passion, is art. You know, there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about her. You know, my my family may have lost Amber, but but they got me back. You oh, know, yeah. So um, I just try to live every day like it could potentially, you know, the thing is, is, is looking back, you know, of course, immediately I want to, I want to be angry at him for getting behind that wheel. But the truth is, is how many times have I been in that same situation? How many times have I dri driven drunk, you know, more times than I could, than I can count, you know, and I could be in that same situation. I'm solely responsible for, for what I do in my life and that's it and, and do the next right thing and, and give it to God and, 
you know, practice, 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 right? Like, how do we get good at anything through practice, right? So the more I practice, hopefully the better I'll get get at it. And Jared, this has been a pleasure. You took us on a ride, that's for <laughs> sure. A, uh, uh, well, I, I didn't uh, expect all of this, but I, I really appreciate you being vulnerable. Well, thank you for having me, John. It's been a pleasure. Let me go ahead and read from page 164 of the big book. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to Him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us, like me and Jared, as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Once again, Mr. Jared, thank you so much. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. Thank you again, Jared, for sharing your story. I know it is going to help people out there in all four corners of the world. And as you said toward the end there, uh, I'm solely responsible for my actions uh, and doing the next right thing. What a great message you had to share there today, Jared. I, I so appreciate that. If you are out there and that story somehow impacted you, please pause your device and share that particular episode uh, or the podcast as a whole with a friend or family member. It may be just what they need today. You don't need to share your gossip. You can just share Jared's story. Now, on to a little bit of a listener feedback from you listener feedbackers. This one comes in again. Oh, he's writing in again. Oh, he had the nerve to write in again after I butchered his name and everything from last week. Uh, this is, uh, he says, hi, John. This is Rito, writes in from Zurich, Sweden. Sweden, and I think Sweden is the place where that little snowman hangs out from Frozen. Olaf, I think Olaf, I think that is his name. Olaf and that whole gang of people from uh, from uh, Frozen, I believe they're all from Sweden. Can you tell? I just saw the movie once, like eight, ten years ago, and I'm just kind of going off memory. I'm sure you can, but nonetheless. Rito, and we couldn't figure out, I say we, I couldn't figure out, I'm sure everybody else knows, last week, how to pronounce, is it Reto or Rito? And then I kind of went through the thing where I know that Rito rhymes with Cheetos, and I'm wondering if he eats Cheetos, but nonetheless, just get on. He says, hi, John, is Rito again from Zurich? Big smiley face. He says, first of all, I want to thank you again for your great, in big capital letters, podcast. I just finished an episode with Gary Kay about step one. Wow, he says. And then he's got three little explosion uh, um, uh, emojis. <laughs> and then he has a, a praying hands emoji. And then he has a thumbs up emoji. And then he says, I have a question. Well, Rito, I'm happy to answer your question, if I know the answer. He says, what is the title of this wonderful guitar intro at the beginning of your podcast? As a totally beginner guitar player, I would love to play that song at home. Look forward to your next episode, JFT. 
JFT. Oh, I think that, um, I'm guessing here a JFT just for today. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think that's what. And then he says, "Oh gosh, H1S2 greets Rito A and and then big praying hands." So I'm no, I'm pretty sure the H1S2 is from our secret Facebook group. There is a gentleman in there. His name is Steve. I call him our daily reflections guy. Anyway, he puts something in there just about every day, big book quotes and such. And and uh, and he always ends it by writing, help one save two. So I am just assuming that's what it is. I don't think I've ever seen it abbreviated before, but I do like it. So H1S2, uh, right back at you, Rito, and thank you for writing in. Oh, so back to the question. The question is, who wrote that that intro? And that is a, a friend of mine, a good friend named Doug. He's not in the program, and uh, he lives near me, and he goes to my church, actually. And we've known each other for quite some time. And I, 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 I asked him one day, I said, hey, Doug, I need a little intro music here. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm starting to get a little traction, and this uh, Sober Speak thing may, may stick around. And so he graciously came over to my, quote, studio, which is my guest bedroom, nonetheless. Uh, and uh, he, he brought his guitar over and he just whipped that out in about, uh, uh, you know, like, like a minute. And we recorded it, and and I took a uh, like a, a minute of it or something like that, and and I just put it as the intro. And so it doesn't really have a a title. Uh, it's never been written down. I talked to Doug about it, uh, and Doug said he may write down some chords or something. You know, if somebody needs it, and I'll I'll get with him later on that. But I'm so sorry, it's not really a something that that can be passed on. I guess you just have to have a musical ear and, and listen to it and play it. So I'm so sorry, Rito. I, I wish I could help you out. Barry writes in, and he says, London calling. <laughs> this is my friend Barry from London, across the pond. He says, well, hey there, John. Greetings from the lockdown in London. He's got a bunch of ends in there. And then about five exclamation points. He says, John, I have a official complaint to make. As you know, I head off into a deep and calm sleep after listening to the weekly podcast. Tonight, I listened to your Thanksgiving message before heading into this week's show. When you finished up, you said, gobble, gobble, until you wobble, wobble. (laughs) I've been rolling off my bed laughing. And then he's got about 10... 12, 15, I would say, smiley faces and laughing faces and all that kind of stuff. He says, I need to lock and load this week's podcast ASAP. Otherwise, I'll gobble, wobble right out of my bed. 
And then he's got another eight or so smiley faces. And he says, best wishes, best wishes, John M. You are a legend. And I wrote him back. I said, I am no legend, Mr. Barry. You, my friend, are the legend. I'm a legend wannabe. Uh, but nonetheless, and then he wrote back in about three hours later or something. And he said, and he wrote in, in the subject line was still awake triple exclamation point. He says, well, howdy there, John. <laughs> He's got a, I don't even know they made these, like a, a smiley face with a, with a cowboy hat on. <laughs> oh, and he says, it's 115 and I'm still gobbling with no sign of wobbling asleep. And then he's got this uh, emoji of all these Z's, like uh, the sleeping, you know, whatever. I Yet, he says, God grant me dot, dot, dot. And then he's got another 12 or so smiley faces. Well, Barry, I hope, my friend, that you finally got some shut-eye over there in London, <laughs> and I really appreciate you writing in. <laughs> oh, Chastity writes in. Let's get on uh, away from that silliness. I'm, I, I think this one's going to be more of the serious nature. I'm hoping so. She says, good morning, John. I am now four years sober. Yeehaw, Miss Chastity. That is grand, fantastic. She says, I am an alcoholic and an addict, and I'm also a recovering from heroin addiction. I am from a small town called Ganado, Ganado, Arizona. She says, we are near the Four Corners area. And just in case you're not from the United States, uh, that is where four states meet in four corners, uh, where the borders are all like uh, uh, corners. And uh, those are Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, and Utah. She says, I live on a reservation and I am a full-blooded Navajo. I recently subscribed to Amazon Music and I look for an, any AA related material and your podcast was listed. The podcast interviews I really get a lot from were Chip B and Matthew M. Yet we have Matthew M coming back again sometime soon. Uh, she says where Matthew talks about the surrenders. I feel like I've heard him before too. Both of them, I've heard them on YouTube audio, but it was nice hearing a more recent version of them and live, especially during this pandemic. Love your podcast and I look forward to listening to you more. Thanks for your service, Chastity J. Well, thank you, Chastity J, for writing in from near the four corners there in uh Arizona. I so am appreciative of you being a listener. Julie writes in. Julie says, hi, John. I love your podcast. I listen while I'm working from home during this virus. What a great addition to my sobriety. Thank you. Could you please add me to your Facebook group? Much appreciated. Julie R. Well, as you know, Julie, we got you over that invite and we're so glad to have you in there. Vivian writes in and she says, Dear John, just I just want to thank you for your podcast. I'm six and a half years sober through the Alcoholics Anonymous program. It's the best decision I ever made. Walking in and asking for help. Good for you, Vivian. She says, I live in Norwalk, Connecticut. Since COVID started, I've looked 
four ways to stay connected, and your podcast has been very meaningful. I just listened to Ricky R. today. Oh, yeah, I love Ricky R. I loved his message, and I also liked Paula R., Vanessa S., and Megan P. There are so many more. I'm so grateful to be able to listen, so wonderful to listen to people who can clearly articulate how they apply the 12 steps in their life. It has become a part of my daily routine, and it helps to keep me on the beam. God bless Vivian. Thank you, Vivian, very much. You can't see me, but I'm doing little namaste hands right now. But uh, thank you so much for writing in. Bill writes in and he says, John, my name is Bill here and I am an alcoholic. I want to say thank you for your podcast. The twists and turns of life have led me to some jobs that could afford me the ability to listen to your speaker episodes. So very thankful for your program. Wondering if you can add me to the super secret Facebook group. Thanks, Bill C. Well, Bill C., as you know, we got you in that Facebook group, and we are so happy to have you along for the ride. Much appreciated. Cecilia writes in, and Cecilia says, Hi, John M. I live in Kentucky, but accent-wise and culturally, I am from central Illinois, where I grew up. I came to your wonderful podcast by way of Al-Anon and COVID. I found you doing a search in my podcast app. My ex-husband was my qualifier. Looking back, I can see he was likely not an alcoholic, but a hard drinker with many mental illness and emotional issues stemming from childhood abuse. He was more fitted to ACA, I suspect. Nonetheless, his drinking affected me or brought or brought out in full view many defects that I'd had all along and my children also. So I'm hanging around uh, I'm hanging around on that thread. I attend weekly Al-Anon meetings, Zoom, and I'm looking for a sponsor, but it's made it harder with all this social distancing, but it's not impossible. Since COVID, I began augmenting my own recovery program with Sobercast and the Recovery Show, where Spencer led me to your podcast, which I love. Your personality is fantastic. Oh, that's very nice, Cecilia. As are your interviewing skills. You know, I've had people talk about my interviewing skills before, but I, and and I'm not being overly humble here. I I, I don't. I've never been an interviewer, never thought about it. I was never in radio, nothing like that. Uh, but, but I'm glad uh, some people at least appreciate my interviewing skills, which I did not even know I have. I guess I have them nonetheless. Um, and she says, I'm terrible with names, but Buddy C, Buddy C's name pops into my head and David G and Bill C, maybe more. I noted 116 and number 107 as two of my favorite episodes, but there are so many more of your Sober Speak guests that I've inspired me. Well, me too, Miss Cecilia. Uh, the, I, I cannot say enough about the people who come in here and lay out their hearts for you guys. 
You then led me to Sober Meditations, which is from my friend Buddy C, who then led me to the Tao of my understanding. I always listen to one of these podcasts and meditate every single morning before work. I listen to Alcoholics in AA because the work, the because pro- they work the program as if their lives depended on it, which they very much do. Your collective knowledge and practice of the steps, traditions, history, and concepts of AA inspire and instruct me. The honesty, humility, ability to love, wisdom, gratitude, and spiritual growth that you have gained and so freely share helps me more than I can say. You're so sweet, Cecilia. The honest, uh, I rarely use Facebook, but would be interested in your sober sober secret Facebook group if you think I qualify. Well, you know what, Cecilia? You qualify if you want to be in it. As you know, I got you over that invite. Um, She says, thank you for what you do, and thank you for your bride, Shannon, as well, who helps you. Cecilia, P.S., I study and have learned to speak Spanish, so I have to tell you as an aside that I just love your bilinguality. <laughs> Thank you so much. Maybe we can make that a, uh, maybe we can get that term in the uh, dictionary eventually there, Cecilia, bilinguality. So anyway, you're so sweet for writing in. I appreciate it. Last but not least, my friend Damon from across the pond, writes in and he says, geezer, that's what he calls me, geezer. (laughs) I guess that's good. And then he's got three big smiley face emojis. And he says, hi, John, long time no speak, brother. Been meaning to drop you a rowing boat. And then he puts in parentheses note. So he's translating his I guess that's a uh, upper crest English. I don't. I don't know what that is. Anyway, he says I've been meaning to invite you, uh, drop you a rowing boat for a while, but it's been hectic this side of the pond. Life is getting more full and rewarding day by day, thanks to this sobriety lark. <laughs> He says, I'm coming up on the big 600 days and could not be happier, my old China plate. And once again, in parentheses, he translate that my China plate means mate. By the way, I guess I need to translate mate. Mate means friend, I think, right? He says, it is binding. It is, excuse me, it is blinding. Once again, a translation, very good. Being a sober dad, the lockdown has given me the gift of time with my two bin lids, bin lids, which is once again translated as kids. So he's got two bin lids. I've never heard that. I'm glad he translated it. He says, being sober and present for them, honestly listening and taking time Uh, and talking to them as human beings, discovering the love of these two little people all over again. A God-given blessing in this age of so much pain and loss around us. That's great, Damon. Anyways, I I heard that Sober Speak episode you mentioning the shindig with Gary Kay on December 4th, and I would like to help spread the word out to the 
hashtag recovery posse gang on Twitter. You see, I know some right dodgy geezer called, and this is his handle if you want to follow him, at alcoholic dad four, the number four, at alcoholic dad four. And there's not and he's not a bad fella. <laughs> smiley face, smiley face. He'd love to help. If he can, send me some links on the Twitter DM or tweet the deets so I can share the sober speak love as always, mate. Love and recovery, Damon. Well, you know what? I'm not a aficionado at um a tweet at Twitter, but I did manage to go ahead and tweet out those deets. For you, Mr. Damon, the one and only at Alcoholic Dad 4. All right, folks, that's it for this week. I take it one week at a time. I will most likely be back next week. God bless you. Um, and uh, uh, keep coming back. It works if you work it.